Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one -one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. Hello and welcome to Marketing Week Meets, a new monthly podcast in which we speak to a marketing luminary about their life, career and thoughts on the state of the marketing universe. Our criteria for interview subjects is this, people who have left a mark on marketing and of course have an opinion or two. Just before we begin, I would just like to mention due to our clashing schedules, unfortunately our guest has changed this month, but our new guest is in every way a marketing luminary and they tick all our required boxes. In the studio today we have David Weldon. David is a highly respected and very experienced marketer with more than 35 years in the industry. Starting as an account executive at Saatchi & Saatchi in the early 80s, he has had an illustrious career both agency side with notable stints as president of BBDO Europe and CEO of Team Vodafone at WPP, and brand side with senior global executive roles at Coca-Cola and Vodafone. However, it is his time in financial services in the last 10 years that has been arguably the most eventful. First, as head of brand and reputation at Barclays, where he had to steer the brand through the LIBOR crisis, and then since 2015 at RBS Group, where as CMO and Executive Committee member, he is tasked with rebuilding the reputation of some of the biggest brands in banking post-financial crash. Oh, and if that wasn't enough, he's also the current president of the World Federation of Advertisers, where he is leading the global trade body's efforts on media transparency and brand safety. David, welcome. Thanks, Russell. Good to be here. Is it fair to say you're not one to shirk a challenge? I think that would be fair to say, I mean, especially with that great management tool, the benefit of hindsight. It's always easy to look back at decisions you make think, thinking that sounds interesting, but you don't always know exactly what you let yourself in for. I mean, one of those challenges and a big challenge is obviously your current role at RBS. After the financial crash, the government bailout, mis-selling scandals and criticism over bonus payments, and probably fair to say challenging NPS scores when you, uh, when you joined, many marketers, perhaps with the career that, you've, that you had at that point behind you, might have thought it a challenge too far, shall we say. No, it, well, it struck me as a, a challenge that was doable. Uh, and as I sit here almost three years in, I think we're making good progress. But to go back to the you know, why I joined in the first place. It was an awful lot to do with Ross McHugh and our CEO, not least because I report to him, but because I, he is a guy absolutely focused on doing the right thing for customers and on getting the bank right back on the correct track. Uh, and I could tell that when I met him and he's been a inspirational guy to work with. Uh, and I think we're making slow but Sure progress. Talking of Ross McEwen, I think not long after you joined or around the same time, he committed to making RBS the number one brand for customer service, trust and advocacy by 2020, which was a challenge. What's your progress to achieving that aim? Well, it was actually that was before I joined and, and obviously the people that were putting together my briefing pack in my office had heard tell of the fact that I was a blithering idiot because when I got into my office... Um, there was a nice mouse mat with the strategic triangle on it there, just in case I didn't notice that. There was also a sticker on the window and there were two boards and I would sit staring at these things. Uh, and actually what I really stared at is exactly what you just said. Number one, for customer service trust and, and advocacy by 2020. And I found myself thinking, well, what's going to be number one and for whom? Um, because it didn't strike me that RBS was going to get to number one, uh, which is where we then set about doing the brand architecture work 
to look at the customer-facing brands because, of course, RBS was, I think history will show, a, a gloriously well-built global brand that supported a business that failed horrendously. Uh, and actually what people had done was unravel the global business, but nobody had ever made the rather simple observation that there was no longer a global brand to build the brands that needed rebuilding were the customer-facing ones. And how did you go about, in terms of brand architecture, as you just mentioned, deciding which brands do what and, indeed, what the corporate brand actually stood for? Talk me through that process when you were mapping and sketching it out. This is actually worth saying, and it's career advice I gladly give anybody. If you possibly can, in your career, take a job which requires you to have gardening leave because gardening leave brings with it several things, the delight of a regular paycheck and with nothing to worry about because you know that the job is coming soon, the opportunity to look from the outside at what you're about to do and actually do that kind of free of any interruption. So what I would say is that it was probably during that phase that it was pretty plain to see, uh, and obviously I'd been sent lots of reading material to support this, that there was a very simple way of doing this, which was to go back to the geography that the brands were born in. So in Scotland, the Royal Bank, as our customers call us, and in England and Wales, NatWest, and in the island of Ireland, Ulster. So we had ready-made brands for geography, slightly complex task to try and reboot four of them in one go. But again, you know, what I could see was that RBS had in its possession some fantastic brands. So apart from the ones that had geographic provenance, the probably the shining wealth brand in the world, Coots, then a great little brand that serves the military, Holtz, and a couple of other small brands that we haven't quite got round to rebooting yet, Child & Co., and Drummond's, both excellent private banking brands as well. Uh, and I could see that there was an opportunity to recast RBS as what it actually is, which is the holding company and the company we all work for, so the employer brand and the investor brand, if you like. And actually... That was pretty easy to observe from the outside, as anybody in this fine profession knows, making that observation and then trying to make it happen inside is a whole different exercise. So then set about a three, four-month piece of work to get the brand architecture agreed at the executive committee, at the board, and comprehensible enough to present it to the people that really matter, the people that serve our customers and build these brands day in, day out. Just picking up on that, I mean, how do you corral and make sure that the workforce, the people at the coalface, if you like, serving customers and speaking to customers, how do you get them on board? Because you've got thousands of employees at different brands. I mean, what sort of process is involved there? Well, I mean, the, here's a surprise by talking to them and listening to them and getting out and about and, and the sheer exercise of shoe leather and listening to people's opinions, and certainly not by sitting in an office and just looking at documents, so they need to do a bit of that too and look at the data. But obviously, we're now in an era where much of this is much easier than it once used to be. So we use Workplace, they used to call it Facebook at Work, is a great place to connect with our frontline colleagues and to see what energises them and what they like. So in the case of NatWest, it was very easy to see the energy we were creating with the brand idea because it was based on what they do day in, day out. Are you happy with the progress in defining that brand architecture, but more importantly, implementing it? I think it's always a tough process to reboot such a large brand, especially you know, when you look at the number of customers we've got. We've got 12, 13 million customers and actually segmenting them, looking at where 
we're supporting them well, where we could do better, and actually getting a real focus on the segments that matter. So probably the one that we've made the most rapid progress on is NatWest Premier, where I, I'm happy with the data we're gathering, happy with the response we're getting from customers. Um, the one that's slower is what we would describe as everyday banking. That's a little bit because, you know, we're rebuilding the bank for its long-term future, and that means following the data the data shows. Well, let me ask you, when did you last go into your branch, Russell? I banked with First Direct, so I don't oh, you have never a did. Well, you never did. Well, there you go. Well, you were, you were ahead of the curve, no surprise there. But, the, you know, what we see is people aren't really using branches. What they're increasingly doing is using our mobile app. They're using online, obviously, and you were an early adopter of a different way of banking. It's the only thing I've early adopted. <laughs> but, you know, what that, what that means is we've had to set about the slightly difficult task of closing branches. And when you close branches, uh, by definition, you upset some customers and how to manage that process so that we do it carefully, thoughtfully, treat our customers and our colleagues well um, is one of the problems we get with NPS because people have an emotional, visceral response to that. And actually what you can see in the NPS tracking is on average that lasts for about six months and then they get over it and get on with it again. Mm. I mean, do you think banks can ever be liked as brands? No, I mean, I don't, you know, the, obviously, if you were to talk to me 20, 30 years ago, I might have talked about the need to be a love brand and everybody must love their bank. I, I, I meanwhile, know better than that. You know, all we're here to do is to look after people's money carefully, thoughtfully, help them get the most out of it. And they probably don't want to have any particular relationship with us other than knowing that we keep them and their money and data safe and secure. So not being hated um, is a good place to start, especially if you come from um, the RPS brand. But we've made we've made good good progress, uh, and I think on NatWest in particular, I can see some underlying brand metrics that give me great hope that we're going to once again be liked and a preferred brand. That'll do fine. Let me just take you back before RBS. Um, you joined Barclays in 2012, as you pointed out, just before the LIBOR rate uh, rigging scandal hit. Having joined to do one job, how did the LIBOR scandal? and the huge reputational hit that that caused changed your challenge there. The interesting thing is it was Bob Diamond who was the CEO that hired me to help what had previously been separate businesses become one brand, even though they might have been called things. I mean, he himself was a fierce proponent of what he would have called Barcap, Barclays Capital, the investment bank. There was Barclays Wealth. There were lots of separate businesses. And in classic poacher-turned-gamekeeper fashion. He wanted one unified brand and it all joined up neatly and tidily, which is what I set out to do. And I started in January 2012. But by July, Bob was gone. And I think Barclays is in their record books and will long be there as the only company, publicly quoted company, that managed to lose its CEO, COO and chairman all over the course of one weekend. Now, I think you know what that means when you come into work on a Monday. I think the word I'll go with is discombobulating. Cause, <laughs> cause the, That's probably a very polite way of yeah. putting it. Well, because there's no, you know, there's no kind of crisis recovery plan that covers all of that. So I think the company was a bit at sea for a while. And, and, and if I just do my personal thing about that, I thought, well, what can I do here? And I thought, well, I, one of the things I can do is to make sure we get out and say sorry and apologise. So we ran some ads to apologise. Took me 10 days, I have to say, to convince everybody that we should do that because people weren't quite clear what we were apologising for. And in a way, 
it, that's an anecdote worth hovering over because it shows you what's gone wrong with banking over all these years where people hadn't actually acknowledged that you know the general public had a real problem with the way that banking had led us into an economic crisis seen through the general public's eyes I hasten to add yeah. um, but eventually we got a an apology ad out we were also doing some work at the time on purpose and values and what we were doing was looking at the values inside out because again if I go back to the beginning I think it was HR that did a very clever thing which is to put me through the induction day for each separate bit of the bank so January February 2012 I attended all of those induction days totted up the number of values that were being talked about and went to the exco in April to say you say you want to build one global brand and that on average usually has let's say four to five values we appear to be operating with 35 different ones. So we started a process which I then continued when all the management had gone. I was lucky because the ex-co sponsor of this work was a gentleman called Anthony Jenkins, and I remember saying to him, look, HR would like to stop this work. I'd like to continue because I think we need to. And he said continue, and we agreed that whoever the next CEO was, um, he or she would need this work, and it indeed turned out to be Anthony. So the purpose and values then came from the inside out and it's what drove the growth of Barclays through Anthony's era. Let me take you back right to the beginning of your career in marketing. What was it that first inspired you to get involved? Well I, I started out as you said in your kind intro in an advertising agency in Saatchi and Saatchi and actually the what had appealed to me about advertising was really based on what I'd done. So when I left university, I became an English teacher, easy way to travel around the world. And one of the things I learned to do when I was doing that was to communicate clearly and simply with people who couldn't always necessarily speak the language I was trying to teach them. And I also learned that I could stand on my hind legs and communicate to any number of people. So when I thought it was time to try and find a job for the long term, I looked around and actually one of the things I stumbled across was advertising. And I particularly liked at the time, and you'll remember the data, even though you're a lot younger than me, you know, we're talking about an era when the ads were more liked than the TV programmes. And there was some great advertising at the time. And I thought, that looks interesting. I, I, I wonder if I could find myself a job in that. So from that thought to finding one, there's a long, boring process I could tell you about another day, which took me about 18 months, but eventually I did indeed get a job in Charlotte Street. Just interjecting on that, you mentioned there that there was a time when uh, ads were perhaps liked more than the TV shows themselves. Do you think that's true today? I don't necessarily mean TV advertising. There's a lot of criticism, obviously, about the quality of online and that diminishing people's appreciation. No, I certainly don't think it's true today. I mean, I still hark back to the days when a great film would be a really compelling way to bring a brand idea to life. I think that's still true. But, you know, in the era when you can watch everything on time shift, unless you've got something absolutely compelling, you won't get people's attention. And, and actually, what I can see is a drift into poorer creativity as a result of that. We've already mentioned that you started your career in, in advertising, advertising agencies. And you've You've sort of bounced between agency and client even uh, since then. Is that a strategy? Did you think you would no, really I, appreciate both? No, no. I mean, I think the um, I once described myself as the accidental careerist because apart from wanting to get into advertising, which took me long enough after that, most of it was down to trying to do the best I could and somebody would come along and offer me another job. Sometimes I'd say yes, sometimes I'd say no. Mostly I got that right. A couple of times I got it wrong. 
but I didn't actually have an intentional strategy. Now, meanwhile, looking back, I think it's a really good thing for people to understand both sides of the fence here, because unless you've worked in an agency, you won't really understand the vast amount of work that goes on just to turn up and present a radio script, to use that as a, a tiny example. And actually, the a client that doesn't understand the inner workings of an agency probably doesn't know how to get the best work out of an agency, probably doesn't know how to motivate people in the right way. Uh, and actually, vice versa, you know, unless you understand what's going on in a client's mind and all the things they have to deal with day in, day out, it's kind of tricky. So I, I have found along the way that some of the best people I've worked with have been people who've had experience on both sides of the fence. And, and actually, when I go back to my Coca-Cola days, when I first became a client, I thought I would ask agencies to send people, um, partly because I was short of staff, I have to confess, but also uh, to help them understand what was going on as interns. So people would come spend three to six months working for the Coca-Cola company, then return to their agency, and they were better servants of the Coca-Cola company as a consequence of that. Uh, and actually a trick I've used ever since, actually. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about broken relationships between agencies and clients. It sounds like you would advocate people working in both or at least working more collaboratively and closely in order to perhaps fix that relationship? Yes. And uh, and if you look at, you know, what what is this broken relationship thing about? Because uh, in the end, clients need you know, agencies that can I write an ad? Yes. Can I write a great ad? No. <laughs> Will I ever be able to write a great ad? No. You know, we're always going to need people who can do things that we can't as clients, uh, which is why we should respect the expertise, pay for it fairly, reward it properly. Clients have to always remember that we we have all the cards in this relationship. We're the ones that pay the money. We're the ones that can say yes or no, and we're the ones that should therefore really be respectful of the expertise, thoughtful about how we pay and thoughtful about how we build effective relationships because otherwise, you know, you can create an unintended consequence of treating agencies badly as you'll end up with nobody to work with. And actually you can also, you can see that with people's careers too. People who have thrived in this business have done it by being clear, straightforward and really demanding clients get great work and, but they remember to do things like say thank you. And it matters a lot. Thinking over your long career to date... What's the biggest change or changes that you would pinpoint that have happened in that time? Yeah, well, obviously, when you find yourself, you, you were kind in your introduction, but I've been variously described as a veteran, an old fart, or whatever you like. But, you know, what, what you... Experienced and highly <laughs> respected, I no, went no, with. Let's go with that. Let's go with that. But I think, you know, if I go... When I started, we were in an era of TV advertising worth remembering that, you know, email didn't exist, let alone the internet and everything that's come with it. Now there are multi-channels, but I get asked on a regular basis to talk about the new marketing, to which I always say, no, no, marketing is exactly the same as it's always been. What's different is the speed of the feedback loop and the multiplicity of channels available to you. And actually the, the problem there is, to use an incorrect word, being choiceful enough to do the right thing all the time. Do you think there is a place for digital experts or is it all just marketing, as you've just alluded to? No, I do think, you know, one of the problems you obviously have in marketing these days is keeping abreast of every possible development. How, you know, how can you, when you've got a full on day job, understand what new channel is available to you? You rely on expertise externally, tell you what's going on and you have to trust that expertise. But, you know, I've had my fingers burnt along the way by you know people telling me they were social media experts and they clearly 
had to go and leave the room and go, social media, what's that? But you then learn how to ask the right questions. You then learn how to be cautious. But I don't think it's correct to say there's this great divide. And one of the tricky bits when you've got my colour hair is people presume that's because I'm a Luddite and I don't like the new world. I love the new world. I've always been driven by I'm a bit of a gadget freak. I like all all the new things. I have to resist them carefully and thoughtfully and really ask the tough questions about, but how's this going to add to our marketing mix? Warming to that, what are your biggest bugbears about modern marketing? Or is it indeed the phrase modern marketing? My biggest bugbear is this the myth of personalisation because the digital promise as we're living at the moment, it hasn't turned out everything that people said it would be. And actually people's data has been disrespected things aren't actually being served up in the way that people would expect. So I think there's a promise behind the digitization of everything that hasn't necessarily delivered. And that is something that troubles me because, you know, here we are in banking in an era of open banking when the winner must absolutely be our customers. Our customers should always get the best products and services, best opportunity in the right way, but they need to know that we're going to look after their data and they need to know that anybody who else, anybody else they give their data to is going to do the same thing. And we're living in a very turbulent time against that subject and this is all just before GDPR arrives as well. On data, I mean, do you think people want the personalised experiences that we, as a, and I mean we as a marketing industry, have convinced ourselves that they do, do they want personalised advertising, for example? No, well, I, I, your fantastic columnist, Mr Richardson, has written very well on this um, lately, and as he correctly said, you know, the, I am in the camp that find a Minority Report as a dystopian nightmare, that lots of marketeers think that's heaven, which is a real worry. But if you look at the data, which in the end is the thing we have to do, what people actually want is value in the exchange that they get with whoever's marketing to them. So as long as a customer sees value in the exchange, that's probably what they want. If they see no value, they don't. So I am endlessly chased round the internet by people wanting to sell me funeral plans. I know I'm old, but I don't want a funeral plan. What's the biggest achievement, your own considerable achievements aside, of course, that you've seen in marketing? I think I've got two or three that I focus on when I look back. One is uh, the incredible growth of mineral water, remembering in the 80s when it became fashionable to have sparkling bottled water. And I used to sit there and go, how on earth are people doing that? And meanwhile, it's a, you know, a global industry and sector of incredible repute. Then I also think you know, some of the public service stuff, like seat belts, drunk driving. I mean, I think the power of marketing to really impact a social change has been much underrated. And actually, those are two examples in this country that anybody of a certain age, I'm sure, will resonate with. But, you know, for those of you that never drink or drive, there was a generation before you that did. And it's great to know that that stopped. Any particular brands, strategy that you've admired? Obviously, when you worked for the kind of companies I have, I I carry a lifetime membership of the soap opera is how I always describe it so now I I used to once admire coke but actually as I was walking here I just saw an ad that my ex-boss Sergio Zeman would have shot somebody for because it's for diet coke peach flavor and actually you look at that and go what are you doing so you know I I used to admire the coke brand hugely but I'm worried about the way the coke brand's going at the moment apologies to those that are trying to steer it through the difficult times I do nevertheless love the innocent brand always have done from its conception 
to the way that's been built and carefully thought through and, and because it's got that attention to detail that you have to love, you know, when you're turning over a, a box and on the bottom there's a message targeted, the fact that you must be bored at your breakfast table, that's people being really thoughtful about what customers actually do with their product. And any marketers that um, you admire? Um, I admire many. I always choose not to name them because you know there, there are so many to admire uh, and if I now start naming them, I'll leave out ones that I really admire. But I, you know, I think the interesting thing is the best marketers are the ones that are always learning, never stop learning, and, and have that attached to a humility. And this is not something I was familiar with. If I go back to the 80s, you know, many of the clients I dealt with wouldn't have ticked any of those boxes. Whereas actually, I think some of the best clients I see now tick very much the humility one. The learning all the time, thoughtful all the time, respectful of others, and those are the marketeers I really admire. And could you single out your biggest achievement to date? Oh, crikey. Well, I, the thing I take most pride in is seeing how well a lot of the people I've worked with have done along the way. So I, I'm really proud of watching people I've worked with, and I remember them when they were nippers and they're now doing very well somewhere else. So that's probably... You know, I, I won't name them either, but they'll know. I mean, the, I take immense pride in that. But the thing I also tell my team today is, you know, if one thing I've really learned is marketing is a we thing. It's not a me thing. So, you know, for all those that say I did this and I did that, uh, they should always remember that it was a we event. It might have been led by somebody, but I'm pretty proud of a whole series of work on that basis. So, you know, probably the if we go back to my Coke days, I really like the work we did for the Olympics or for... 96 football euros here and I think it was the first time a brand had said listen we sponsor this stuff for you and we understand how much you like it so you know please drink our stuff it was the underlying strategy let me get you uh, to get your crystal ball out just for a moment and just offer your thoughts on what's next for marketing and marketers what trends do you think will define the next 10 years well I, I think a key trend is going to be caused by what's happening to that big blue digital uh, machine at the moment, where I think we're going to have to re-respect people's data and their right to privacy and their right to choose how they get marketed to, and GDPR is going to force some of that. So I think we're going to have a digital re-correction. And I also think that this will help some of the more traditional media as they move ahead. So I, th I see some pretty radical changes in agencies as a consequence of that. You can see that beginning to happen already. Look at the way that the publicist group is reconfiguring itself. Look at some of the struggles of the other big groups and look at the new entrants in the marketplace. So, you know, Accenture fairly aggressively stepping into the marketing territory. So I'd expect to see more of that continue and some more consolidation of the service providers. So when you are retired and you've finished your career in marketing... What would you like to look back on and say, that was my legacy? That summed up my time in the industry. Well, I, I think there are two things. One is the quality of the output and the work, because that's always mattered to me a lot. And I, when my kids were younger, we used to sit looking at ads together, and I would always say, however terrible that is, you need to remember there are a bunch of people behind it who think it's fantastic. So <laughs> hopefully my work and the work I've been involved in is good enough to stand in its own right. But probably more significantly than that is the people I've worked with. And if I've ever had any impact on them and helped them make progress, um, I'd be delighted to know that that was something I could be proud of when I hang up my boots, because I think that's even a marketeer has to hang up their boots at some time. 
Thanks for that. That seems to me to be a a way to finish your career and look back on it and think to think to yourself that you've you've achieved something. If you've liked this episode and want to keep up to date with us, why don't you rate and subscribe? You can do this really easily by just hitting subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And also you can join us and tell us what you think on Twitter at Marketing Weekhead. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers and lower costs.